following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We are uh, glad to be here today. Thank you for for being here. Come on in, folks, and uh, find a good seat. It's interesting to me how many parallels or connections there are between the Scriptures when we're reading in the Old Testament in a way that I did not plan specifically, just we're going chapter by chapter through Isaiah, and we end up in a section that will have some relevance to the message this morning in Titus in just a few minutes. Isaiah 58, if you have your Bible and would turn there to follow along as I read for our public reading of Scripture, we believe this is an important part of our worship service. God has commanded us through the Apostle Paul to give attention to the public reading of Scripture today in Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it? A fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasures, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to rise on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Titus, please. Titus in chapter 1. You ready, brother? Good. Well, it's good. I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I thought you'd chime in anyway, huh? All right. Very good. Titus chapter 1. We're talking today about the ministry of a qualified elder, the ministry of a qualified elder. Last week, we looked at the appointment of qualified elders and really focused on the qualifications listed there in verses 5 through 9. Today we're in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1 in the letter of Paul the Apostle to Titus. The main point of the passage here is, and you can see this in your notes, is that the elder has to be qualified because, 
Notice that word for. Here I'm going to the connection between the sections now. He has to be qualified because there is a big job to do that requires those qualifications. The, 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 the list of qualifications is not just given so that the pastor would be a nice guy. He needs to be a nice guy, but it needs to be that he has those qualifications so that he can carry out the responsibilities that we'll start to see here in verses 10 through 16 and then further on in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul in this section quotes someone who is not a biblical writer, and that offers a little bit of a challenge, so we're going to look at that in our introductory section of the notes and then jump into the text. Let's read it so we're familiar with it uh, this morning before we make those comments. It says in verse 10, why, explaining again, why do we need qualified elders? For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not. I want you to focus on that, ought not. For the sake of dishonest gain, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, and I I'm, take that word prophet loosely, if you would, please. This is a writer, basically, a poet, a leader, a thought leader amongst that community from years before. A prophet, though, is a, a way of, of referring to them. A prophet of their own said, Cretans. Now, pause there just for a moment. You might have forgotten that Paul has said to Timothy in verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete. That was what the setting was that we looked at last time. So he's talking about residents of Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Notice, too, by the way, that Paul doesn't say rebuke them like milk toast. Rebuke them sharply. Sometimes people need a sharp rebuke. Hey, brother, listen, that is not right. You need to stop and you need to turn course, turn about face and go somewhere else. Okay, sharp rebuke sometimes not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. Listen to this. But in works, they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good Work. One commentator that I was reading this week said, this is the basic error of the Cretan system of religion, that you can separate belief from practice. Look at that. They profess to know God, but in works, what? They deny him. Yeah. So... Now, this prophet that Paul quotes of the Cretans, notice C-R-E-T-A-N-S. I think there's another word we use that's very similar to that, or in English. I think it's spelled C-R-E-T-I-N-S, isn't it? I don't know. You folks might know. I, I didn't even look it up this week because it's not the point. Uh, we know this poet here. Notice uh, he says, a prophet of their own, verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. We know this poet because he was discovered, uh, his work was discovered. His name was Epimenides. Okay, that's how you say that name, Epimenides. He was the subject of legend and considered to be a prophetic figure uh, to the Greeks. He may have been a shaman or shaman, however you pronounce that word, and is one of the founders of Orphism, a Greek religion. Uh, legends like he uh, went to sleep for 57 years or that he lived for several hundred years in length um, at that time. He wrote several texts, and you can look it up at the um, footnote there. I've given you the address uh, on the web that you can look at to get some of this information. One of those texts is translated this way. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans 
always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Now, don't read Christian theology into that quote. Okay, Just hold your fire on that and listen to what this really means. Notice that it contains lines that Paul quotes in Titus 1.12 here, Cretans, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, uh, and also in Acts 17.28. I'll just turn there to show that to you. Acts 17 at, at uh, Athens, Acts 17 and verse 28. Uh, Paul preaching, it says here, uh, he's really talking about preaching about this unknown God. That he sees all these idols in their area, in their city, and uh, he tells them in 25, he's not worshipped, the real God's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. By the way, that shows the unity of the human race. There are not multiple races. There is one single race of humanity. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. By the way, I think that is a great argument right there from the Bible for national boundaries to be maintained carefully and legally in the lands of the earth because it actually helps promote peace if you think about it. It's a good thing that people who believe very differently than us live in another area, bounded off by boundaries or uh, the Pacific or Atlantic Oceans or whatever, so that they can't come nigh to us and kill us because they don't like the way we live, nor we them. Okay? Boundaries are a good thing. Um, verse 27, so they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That's from Eratus, the prior phrase there from Epimenides. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature like gold, silver, or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. The Apostle Paul is attacking the foolishness of idolatry and saying, look, even you guys know that you're the offspring of some deity. You're not an offspring of a piece of rock a statue that's sitting here in your city that you bow down to worship, that's craziness. So he uses their own authors, uh, as it were, against them. Now, Paul was obviously conversant with relevant portions of pagan literature, and he used it when, he, when it served his purpose in evangelism. Uh, for parents, I think this may be helpful to remember that our young people do does them well to be some exposed to the things that are out there, not to be you know, marinated in it, not to be taught it, but to be exposed to it so that they know. So they will read some things. I have to read some things. <laughs> I've had to read a lot of things that I'd rather not read, but I feel it forms a, somewhat of a good foundation or background so that I can speak intelligently to the community about us and in our preaching. So he knew some of the relevant portions, and when it served his purpose, he used it. In fact, as the criticism of it came from one of their own, it would be hard for them to criticize the deliverer of the criticism. In other words, Paul says, look, I didn't say it. Your own people said it about yourself. They're recognizing your character is flawed and you have some problems. So that, it, that, can, that criticism may be more effective than if an outsider just said it on his own authority. But... As to the meaning of this text, this is, let's be clear, this is a pagan text. The context is that Epimenides is extolling the Greek god Zeus. Okay? He's saying that the residents of Crete, and he was one of them, believed Zeus to be dead and they built a tomb for him. That he was there and he was entombed on their island. And you can even go there today and find a, a natural formation in, the, in, the, in a mountain that they say looks like Zeus's bearded face, and that's his tomb under there. Uh, they believed him to be dead in need of a tomb. That's what line one is about. They fashioned a tomb for you, high and holy one. See how he's worshiping Zeus there. And then it says, you know, and, and they were the keepers of that tomb. So they were something special, you can imagine. They kept the tomb of Zeus the prophet, however, does not believe, this Epimenides, does not believe Zeus is dead at all. 
What does he believe? Look at line three. You are not dead. You live and abide forever. So he's ascribing to Zeus what is only ascribable to the true and living God in the Bible. And so, because Zeus does not need a tomb, and the Cretans think he has one, they have it for him, he says they're a bunch of liars. See that? Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. Calls out some of their other vices as well. And he extols Zeus as the creator. See that in the last line? For in you we live and move and have our being. The Apostle Paul used this line in Acts to show that even the Greeks recognized that they came from a god, not from wood or stone objects. And Paul is going to preach to them the true god there in Acts 17. And then this line that's quoted here, Epimenides saying that the Cretans are liars about Zeus. Why are they liars? In his mind, this is Epimenides, he thinks they're liars because they believe Zeus is dead and they have his tomb. And Epimenides says, no, he's not dead. You don't have his tomb. He's still alive. Now, Paul uses this phrase and he says this testimony is true, not because he believes exactly the same way as Epimenides does about Zeus, but that the whole idea of Zeus is a lie and that they have a tomb of him and and all of that. The whole business is just a fabrication. It's a lie. And also, they were lazy and beastly in their evil behavior there in the island. Perhaps they did things to their children that are unmentionable or they were dissolute, drunk, immoral. They wanted a life of ease. They wanted to avoid as much work as possible. This is the sinful nature, my friends. And so people look at this and say, oh, yeah, those Cretans, what a bunch of evil scum. Stop. Before you focus too much on them, think about yourself. Have you lied regularly? You're a liar. Have you been evil? We're evil too. Have you regularly chosen to do things other than that which is assigned to you to do by your boss, husband, by the station that you have in life, by God, by your employer, then maybe you're lazy too. Have you managed your food intake properly? Lazy gluttons, the text says here. is something like this. Well, it says in the, in, uh, the other Greek translation, idle bellies. Slow stomachs is what it is may refer to people who like their food a bit too much and it shows and they want a lazy lifestyle. How close to home does that hit? Are we all innocent of these things? And we can say, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like Cretans. I'm so righteous. No, that's not the attitude that we take. We humbly examine ourselves. Like the... Like the tax collector who beat his breast and would not even look up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, I was a sinner like that. You all were sinners like that. I pray we're not sinners like that now. But if we are, we can be made right with God through the gospel of Christ. Now, the text of verses 10 to 16 then shows us two things. And one of those things is the problems in the nation of Crete or the island, uh, you know, province of Crete, if you will. But if you limit it to just the problems, you're going to miss a key ingredient. And I've, I've actually, that commentary I mentioned earlier, the heading on that section is the problem in Crete. But I have two headings on this section, the problem in Crete and the solutions to the problem, because they're both given here. The solution is introduced in verses 10 to 16 by, by extension, by uh, elimination, if you will, by opposite, and by some explicit statements. So the problems in Crete were epidemic throughout the island, or as I say jokingly, epimenidic, like Epimenides. Okay? Um, they had two main problems. They had fake teachers and they had sinful citizens. 
and the solutions to those problems, which we'll extract not in a in specifically uh, in a just one subsection, but the whole section of verses. The solution here is you need to have good pastoring to solve these problems. So let's start with the problems in Crete. First of all, fake teachers, verses 10 and 11. Many, he says, insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, those of the circumcision. Just think about those words just for a moment. Insubordinate. This is contrasted to the qualification of elders back in verses 5 through 9. Remember, the elder himself could not be a lawless person, nor could his children be lawless people. These, however, were lawless, rebellious, not subject to anyone's rule. They made their own rules. They did not regard authority. They were also idle talkers. Okay, what does that mean? It, it, like empty words is what it is in Greek. Empty wordsmiths. They had fill, they're full of meaningless blather. There's no substance to what they were saying. Much of this sort of thing goes on today. Listen to people, talking heads, politicians. They can offer a lot of words sometimes, but then you stop and think, oh, what did they actually say? They said nothing. In the mass of the words, there was very little meaning, and probably, according to the proverb, with many words, there lacked not sin in that speech. There may be emotion, but there's not cognition in those words. Thirdly, they're deceivers, <clears throat> idle, insubordinate, and deceivers. They mislead their audience. They push propaganda that uh, is false teaching, and they push that down the gullets of their gullible audiences. That's what these people are doing. Paul is telling Titus, look, there are a whole bunch of people like this in your island, in your little you know, area of 3,200 square miles that are in need of treatment, in need of help. The people are there in need of, of uh, pastoral work. They were of the circumcision party. Do you see that? Especially those of the circumcision. Who is that? Well, the Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1. It says, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Man, that's bold. The whole chapter, basically, 15, most of it, is taken up with the question, what does a Gentile have to do in order to be rightly related to God? And the conclusion is very clear. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. Peter tells them, look, we couldn't even keep the law of Moses. How are we going to lay that burden on them? Okay, Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by keeping the law or doing some good deeds. Okay, So the circumcision party. Obedience to the law, they said, was uh, in some form necessary for the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, we dealt with something like this in a modern-day manifestation called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Remember those? series of messages I did a few of those on uh, HRM, Hebrew Roots Movement, is demanding that we partake of first century or even prior uh, Jewish flavor of Christianity in order to demonstrate faithfulness to God. That is entirely false doctrine, entirely a false doctrine. Fifth, not only deceivers and so on, circumcision party, but also they teach things that they ought not to teach. Verse 11, the end of the verse there. They teach things they ought not to teach. You know, life is not supposed to be a religious free-for-all. You know, we kind of live in the pluralistic milieu in which we find ourselves, a pluralistic society, and kind of, it kind of gets into our minds and we almost think like, well, listen, it's fine if somebody preaches that and fine if somebody preaches that and and the Bible says, no, there are some who are teaching things they ought not to teach. There are quote-unquote churches that are teaching things today that they ought not to teach. And this word ought is, it is necessary not to be taught. It is necessary. God doesn't look at things like a religious free-for-all, where everybody has their own opinion, and you know it's all postmodern, so you have your truth, and I have my truth, and 
and I, th- I think I've got the corner on truth and all that. No, there's one correct body of truth and doctrine, and we ought not to teach other things. But the ought not teaching happens all the time today. Gender issues, sexual immorality, racism, besides other false doctrines that are taught. Um, there is a moral wrongness to that teaching, and it should not be tolerated with racism. I was referring to what I was speaking this morning, the whole CRT thing and all of that. And you know what I said there earlier. They do all this, these false teachers, to earn, I say in quotes, to earn a living. That is to cheat people out of money, to lighten their wallet a little bit because they want the money. They influence people with smooth words so they can help themselves to some finances. Their motivation is money, not love, not obedience to the gospel of Christ. It's greed. One man just passed away this past week. His name was T.B. Joshua, who was based out of Nigeria, uh, the third richest preacher in Africa, uh, multimillionaire. And uh, I don't know why he died, but it was a sudden thing. He was 57. After preaching for years a prosperity um, gospel, faith healing gospel, uh, and what's all that money going to do for him now? And he couldn't heal himself from whatever his affliction was. And so now he's found out because he's... he's, uh, understood God a little bit better than he did before, that he was terribly, terribly mistaken and wrong. And that's, that's what he was doing for money. And many, many people are doing this kind of thing for money. The result, what is the result? It says in verse number 11, who subvert whole households. What does that mean? That means that the teaching has come into the family, mom, dad, three kids, maybe some teens, some younger, and the false teacher convinces the wife or convinces the kids or convinces the father. And then you've got some in the family that believe one thing and some that believe another. And so you have a house, what? Divided, and it cannot stand. Okay, The house, household, the family is destroyed and its effectiveness for God because you have false doctrine that has leavened up the the place. And it's a terrible thing. These people ought to think, if you destroy, well, like 1 Corinthians 3 says, if you destroy a church, God will destroy you. And I think, if I may so say, it's about the same if you destroy a family. Would you say? The heart of God for the family unit the integrity of that family unit, the agreement together of the husband and wife and the children about sound teaching, and somebody comes in and upsets that with some false doctrine, that's got to be upsetting to God's heart. He is, the, he is not going to treat people with, you know, with uh, kid gloves, so to speak, who are into this upsetting whole households. They, will, they are abiding under the wrath of God, and they will have big-time problems when it comes to to judgment. So Titus is told by Paul, look, you have fake teachers there, and also you have sinful citizens. Verse 12, one of them, this prophet here that we read, Epimenides, says, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Titus and his pastor friends, who he was going to help and train and install in the churches, had to deal with more than just a small group of false teachers. You know, there wasn't like you know, 20 or 30 of these people. Now you have a whole nation, island nation, that's filled with people who are affected by this teaching. I mean, think, you know, it's not just that you have to deal with the handful of media organizations in the United States. You have to deal with the multiplied millions of people whose heads have been filled with the garbage that they preach and teach. That's what we're stuck with to have to deal with. And so you have fake teachers and you have sinful citizens. The prophet called these people liars, evil, and lazy. And I found this, uh, and I don't know which book it's from by this author, Quinn, but he paraphrased it this way. 
Liars ever, men of Crete, nasty brutes that live to eat. Pretty accurate little poetry uh, that reflects this teaching. Paul adds simply to the end of this at the beginning of verse 13 in a devastating blow to the sinners on Crete. This is true. That's apostolic truth, you know. Paul is saying, yeah, that's right. Now, we know, as I read from from history, that it seems that Crete was an island where many pirates lived. Kind of makes sense, right? It's situated out in the Mediterranean, and they want to be able to have quick access to all the boats that go by so they can do their piracy. And they made their living by evil. The island was not populated by dangerous animals, but the people more than made up for it by being beastly in their conduct. They lived for physical pleasure. Now, a little minor point here, but maybe something that will help you when you read things, read the Bible. The fact is that it was a Cretan who said that Cretans are always liars. This has prompted some to consider what they call the liar's paradox. If all Cretans are always liars, can you believe one of the Cretans when he says that they're all liars? Is he lying or is he telling the truth? Oh, and then you get turned around in your head and say, wait a minute, now if he's lying, no, if he's not lying, no, he's not lying, I can't figure that out. Okay, so look, it's all too pedantic for practical Bible study. Even false teachers sometimes get it right, don't they? Yes, the original writer's meaning and Paul's meaning is a general uh, generalization. So I don't know if this may be the best generalization, but I, I thought of this example based on something that I had heard earlier this week. Americans are individualistic as opposed to collectivistic or communistic. Now, that's generally true as a culture, but not absolutely true of all Americans. Each of us is on a spectrum of individualism to groupism, somewhere in there. And, and we recognize in the church we're not lone rangers, right? We have a, an interconnectedness. So we don't fall on the far end of the individualist spectrum, although maybe we do more politically or in personal practice with our own lifestyle and so on. But that's a generalization. Similarly, the residents of Crete had a general reputation. You know, don't worry about this all and liar's paradox and everything. Generally, they were known to be liars, evil, lazy, gluttonous. Generally. Now, out of this situation comes teachers in an environment rich with people who want to hear their fake teaching. Okay? So that's the problem on Crete. You have it everywhere, top to bottom. Okay? Now, what's the solution to the problem? Well, Paul tells Titus, here's the solution. It's not social programs. Okay? It's not wealth redistribution. It's not education in terms of secular education. What is it? It's good pastoring. Good pastoring is the solution to this problem. The basic solution is given in the context in verses 5 to 9. Appoint elders in every city, uh, make sure they're qualified, they're blameless, blameless in personal conduct, in their family upbringing, uh, how they bring up their families and so on, and holding fast the faithful word as they've been taught so that he may be able, the end of verse 9 says, by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who are contradictors. Okay, That's the basic idea, qualified Men are needed to shepherd the church and evangelize the island. Each pastor becomes part of the solution by preaching and teaching biblically accurate doctrine to fortify the church and to convict those who contradict the truth. He teaches healthy doctrine as opposed to idle, deceptive, money-grubbing, circumcision doctrine that subverts whole households. He calls out things that ought not to be taught, And as well as the motivation of greed, he calls that out as well and exposes that. So, a good pastor now. There's several points here I've pulled out from this text. What does a good pastor do? Letter B on page 4. A good pastor maintains 
a good reputation regarding lawfulness, speaking and meaning truth with regard to money, contrary to the dishonest gain motivation that moved the false teachers. He holds the truth and rejects cult doctrines like circumcision doctrine or what is called more commonly the Judaizing faction of teaching. A good pastor also demonstrates good character, no matter the environment around him, especially when it is full of lying, evil, and lazy people. Okay, What I'm saying there is it doesn't matter if your whole island, Titus, is filled up with people like that. Don't be like that. You have to be different than them. Yeah, even if you stick out like a sore thumb to them. I mean, they're going to think you're crazy. If you got saved out of that, why don't you keep on doing the same things you did before? You know, brother, new Christian. No, I'd left that lifestyle. I don't do that anymore. And they think that's crazy. A good pastor rebukes both false teachers and the citizens influenced by them. Look at verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. Now, you might like to stuff a sock in their mouth to accomplish that, but that's not good manners. Um, How do you stop their mouths? Well, you do it by teaching the truth of Scripture. And that's told us in verse 9 effectively, holding fast the faithful word so that he may be able by sound teaching to exhort and convict those who contradict. And he's to teach it so clearly, accurately to the Bible, forcefully, carefully, calmly, that Christians cannot but help to be convinced to follow it. Those who follow the false teachers will hopefully be won over by that careful, clear exposition of the Word of God. I picked this up this morning and added footnote number two, the sad state of the American pulpit. There are many storytellers, entertainers, comedians, pop psychologists, pontificators, leadership gurus, platform builders, one-liners, one-line creators, community organizers, and denominational politicians, but very few true Bible expositors. What is the purpose or goal of such teaching? The scripture tells us here, rebuke them sharply, verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. Okay? Sound in the faith. And nothing else matters if you're not sound in the faith. You know, you can have all the good works in the world, but if you're not sound in the faith, if you're not in the faith, then those good works don't even count. And listen, if you deny God, or say I don't believe in God, or say you deny Jesus, you deny that he died for sinners and rose again in direct contradiction to this word, listen, this is going to be a shocking statement. If you deny Christ, you cannot be a good person. Oh, you can be relatively good. You can help old ladies across the street. But absolutely good? No, it is not good to deny Jesus, to deny sound doctrine. That's not cool. Of course, nobody's good to begin with, but God is making his people better so that they will be good people. But if you deny your creator and your redeemer, that's not good. That's bad. Okay, So when you hear, I don't have to be a believer in God to be a good person, do I? Yes, you do. Because somebody who says God doesn't exist, his creator doesn't exist, is not a good person. Okay, Morally, that's bad. I know that's shocking, but it's true. It's true. And we don't sugarcoat the truth here and try to make people feel better like, oh, they're there now, it's okay, you're a good person. No, they're not going to be saved if they think they're a good person. They need to be shown that they're a lost person and that they've offended the holy God who is the king of the universe. Look, if you want to say to the king, get lost, buster, that's your business. But just realize you're going to find out that that was the wrong thing to say by and by, and you shouldn't have said it. You shouldn't have thought it. You shouldn't have had that philosophy. 
Uh, Number five, a good pastor warns specifically against false teachings. And there are two in this passage. One is Jewish fables, and the other is commandments of men. Let's just think for a moment about what these Jewish fables could be. Really what he's talking about, I think, is taking Old Testament characters and blowing them up larger than life. Okay, so you could imagine easily there's going to be some legends about Moses. You know, did you hear about what Moses did that one time? And, uh, and Abraham and Daniel. And we don't have to even speculate about Daniel because in the Apocrypha, there's ch- Daniel. You remember how Daniel has 12 chapters? Well, some people believe there's chapter 13 and chapter 14 about Susanna and the elders and about Bel and the dragon. And that's Bible to them. Those are legends. They're not included in the original manuscripts, okay? Uh, We can go and look at that in more detail another time. But these Jewish fables, tall tales that people have made up. And then we're supposed to not only rebuke those Jewish fables, and how would I rebuke them? I say, look, don't pay attention to that stuff. That's foolish. Secondly, commandments of men. Uh, and you see some of these examples in the Bible. Um, Jesus rebukes the, the uh, Pharisees. He says, look, you guys tithing mint and anise and cumin and neglecting the weightier matters of the law, you know, teaching as commandments the doctrines of men, or Colossians 2, touch not, taste not, handle not, those things that have to do with the commandments of men, or like when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you people teach to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's a commandment of men. You don't find that in the Bible, in the Old Testament law. That's what they were teaching. So you've got to say, look, you know, when somebody says, look, the Bible says uh, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, Tell me chapter and verse on that one. I'd love to see it because I haven't seen it yet. Okay? Okay. Yeah, so then I would say, look, if it's not there, don't be holding on to it like Bible, okay? People hold these folk proverbs or truths to be Bible, and they're not Bible, okay? A good pastor preaches the gospel, finally, and calls people to be purified to explain what the Christian life looks like. The Christian life, by the way, requires a profession of faith in Christ, which then results in good works, Such people, therefore, are qualified to do works and be obedient to God, and they're going to be obedient to human authorities and admirable instead of disqualified, disobedient, and detestable. Look at verses 15 to 16 as we close this morning. Paul talks about these two groups, that the pastor, the good pastor, is going to help to win people to Christ, to purify them, and then he's also going to be teaching these ones, trying to get them to believe that don't yet believe but are false, the fake teachers and the and the affected citizens. He first says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. Okay, let me say it this way. To the saved, to the true Christian, all things are pure. Back in Acts 15, you remember the uh, the passage that we looked at before, but in verse number 9 this time, the scripture says this. I'll just get there and read it to you, Acts 15. It says in verse uh, 9, Peter rose up and he said this, God made no distinction between us and them, that is, us Jews and those Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. How do you become pure before God? By faith. Purifies us through faith. To them, Paul says, to the pure, All things are pure. Now, this does not mean that sinful things are pure. Okay? Not not everything you can plug into there fits. It means that if a thing can be used for good, then the pure, the saved person, thinks about those good uses for those things, and that's how they respond to them. It means that those things do not defile the person. Uh, Think of Mark 7 Verse 15, the Lord said, look, it's not what goes in, you know, the pork or the unwashed, the hands eaten with, the the hands, the food eaten with unwashed hands, okay? They're all filled with COVID, you know, I mean, that's unclean. Um, No, it's, it's not that which goes in which defiles, it's that which comes out 
which defiles. And so to the pure, all things are pure. Have, have your ham sandwich, it's okay, Gentile. And today I would say, if you wish, Jewish person, you may also have your ham sandwich. The law is not in effect now. I don't see a temple operational or any of that sort of thing. But anyway, my point is not to get hung up on that. It's to say to the pure, all things are pure. I like to think of it as expressing the Christian mind has been elevated out of the gutter. You don't think like you did when your mind was in the gutter. Yeah, thank God for sure. But do you know how an, an, a, a, an unbelieving person can take any innocent thing and turn it around into some gutter talk? Utter profanity, vulgarity, innuendo, sexual jokes, and all of that sort of stuff. That's the unsaved, impure mind. The unsaved, called defiled here. They're not purified by faith. Their minds have not been lifted out of the gutter. Everything to them is a tool they can use for sin, even nominally good things. This is why we have good, good things in the world that are used for such evil purposes. They take seemingly innocent things, even normal conversations, and turn them into sin. Internally, Jesus says of them, their light internally is actually darkness. And how great is that darkness, he says. Their, the impurity permeates their entire soul and conscience. It's like the defilement principle in Haggai chapter 2. Uh, God asks uh, to the prophet, you know, he says, hey, look, if you have a piece of clean meat in your, uh, and you're carrying it and it touches something else, does the cleanness transmit? No. But what if you are unclean? Does that transmit? Oh, yes, they understood that idea, the uncleanness. And so from an unclean hand or from unclean lips driven by an unclean heart and unclean mind, no good thing can come. Now, they think good things can come, and the difficult thing is that such people profess to do what? They profess to know God. Look at 16. Their mind and consciences are defiled, 15 says, but they profess to know God. We're spiritual people. We know God. We're Christians. We're religious. Fake teachers and devotees. But their profession is hollow. They're like clouds without water. Trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up from the roots. The hollowness of their profession is demonstrated by their works. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 15 to 20, beware of false teachers. He says, look, you know the tree by its fruit. Good tree brings forth good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. You will know them by their fruits. So you can talk all you want, but if your life is obviously denying God, don't talk to me at all. Amen. Get right with God. You can say that you're a believer, but if your priorities are ungodly and your activities are ungodly and your thinking is ungodly, then you're ungodly. Amen. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Their works demonstrate here that internally they are abominable, that is morally revulsive to God. They're disobedient to God, even though they claim to know him, and they're disqualified for every good work. Now, that is, that is powerful. That is a powerful verse right there because I'm going to make a video soon on what I'm going to call the mythological good person. The mythological good person. Everybody's, oh, people are generally good, except for the really bad ones, you know. But the mythological good person is the person who says, I, I'm going to go to heaven and God's going to weigh my good and he's going to weigh my bad and he's going to find out my good outweighs my bad. And they don't recognize two problems. Okay, they have this mountain of good works here. Looks real good. And then they say, yeah, I've done a few things, you know, wrong things. But what they're doing is they're looking at the tip of the iceberg of wrong things that they've done. And what God sees is the whole iceberg under the water the monstrosity of evil that they've treasured up for themselves, Romans chapter 2, right? And then 
not only is there, are their bad works so much bigger than they think, but their good works evaporate under the fiery judgment of God because they were disqualified from doing good works in the first place because they were defiled and abominable and detestable before God. Everything that their hand touched was not touched with faith and obedience and love for God. And so that mountain of good works that they thought they had, poof, up in smoke. And the, 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 the huge you know, titanic sinker is still there of all the bad works that they haven't noticed because they just saw the tip of the iceberg there. And they're in big time trouble. They were disqualified from every good work. You know, all the sacrifices, all the offerings, all the prayers, all the fasting, whatever, everything was worthless. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds were like filthy rags before God. The myth of the good person. There is none good, my friends. Only those God makes good after they profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The pastor has a monumental job, yet what we've considered here today is only part of his work. There's even more. As far as stopping up the mouths of false teacher, that's a thankless task. Rarely will the minister be appreciated by those he's trying to rescue from eternal damnation. You too, I mean, if you're ministering to the lost, you know, they're not going to thank you most of the time. Thank you for rescuing my soul from hell. They ought to. Or those he's trying to correct because they have some wrong thinking, rarely will they thank him. Even rarer still would be a thanks from a false teacher who comes to his senses and abandons the empty profession of God in favor of a genuine faith. Dear ones, let us be diligent to pay attention to what we're giving heed to in these days because we live in Crete, basically. Evil, gluttonous, lazy, liars, propagandists, unbelievers, abominable, idolaters. Much of what we hear needs to be rejected, and a whole lot that we hear, we should just turn it off and not even hear it because it's a waste of our time, and we want to focus on things that really matter. Well, that's the minister's job and the problem that he faces, and the problem that we all face. But God is able, and uh, little by little, we'll keep on ministering for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege to uh, be together this morning and to look at your word. We certainly have not tried to uh, sugarcoat this, but to express it in all of its difficulty. Paul didn't write letters because things were easy. He wrote them because they were difficult. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful to your calling, me in this pulpit, Jansen, as he learns the trade and practices it himself, our deacons, all of our men and women in the church who have a a part to bear in this ministry, doing this same exact thing. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.